This is The Red Line, where we interview three big geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. For this show, we've talked about some places quite far off the beaten track, but I don't think we've ever talked about something as out of the way as this week's focus. The Lake Chad region, at the convergence point of Nigeria, Cameroon, Niger and Chad, is so far outside the normal periphery of the Western media, it has gained the nickname the Dead Heart of Africa. What was once the center supply point in one of the world's most important trading routes is now, for the most part, bypassed by the international community. The prominence of the lake has been fading for the last few centuries, but now it's creeping back into the purview of many of the regional players. Maybe not, though, for the reasons it would like to be. Today, the lake supports around 30 million people, many of which rely on the lake for farming, fishing and transport. But their lifeline is shrinking at an alarming rate. The lake's surface area has shrunk by 90% since the 1960s, transforming areas that were once lush, fertile food baskets into harsh desert frontiers, creating scarcity, poverty, harsh competition, but most of all instability amongst its 30 million residents. And where there's instability, problems usually follow. See, it's not just the desertification that's been creeping in. Terrorism is also taking over large parts of the region. Groups like Boko Haram and the Islamic State in Africa are capitalizing on the fear and scarcity arising from the shrinking lake, the consequences from which are already radiating throughout the rest of North Africa. So this week we take a look into Lake Chad, its shrinking waterline, the terrorist groups growing there, as well as what groups like the US and the French Foreign Legion are trying to do to keep the lid on the problems here. And to take us through all of this, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Shrinking Shores I would say Lake Chad is a place that is very, very difficult for the civilians to live because of the main problem of that area, which obviously is Boko Haram. The group that had started about 19, 18 years ago has come to at some time rule the some of the area around the lake and has been using the lake to gain money from the locals and to be honest most of the locals had to flee their houses because of the violence that has been present there since 2009 when the Boko Haram Insurgency has started. Tomasz Robiecki is an expert from the University of Gdańsk in northern Poland. Tomasz is an analyst focusing on the geography of terrorism around the Lake Chad Basin. He joins us today. Probably you wouldn't expect uh, such a big lake uh, in that area of the world because it's like in the middle of African continent, the western uh, and the northern parts of africa because that's where the arab-speaking population the french-speaking population and english-speaking population sort of mix once the centerpiece of the Borno empire and an important stop in the east-west trading routes through africa lake chad is now divided up amongst four nations chad niger Nigeria, and Cameroon, all four of which use the lake in completely different ways. But let's go through all of these individually. The biggest portion of the lake is controlled by the Republic of Chad, a semi-poor nation right in the heart of North Africa. And even though the country recently came into reasonably sized oil deposits, Chad suffered through major corruption and poverty, being ranked 162 of 180 when it comes to the International Corruption Rankings, or the CBI. The president, Idris Deby, spends large portions of his time in Paris rather than the capital in Jamina. And he's held the job since 1990. So how does Chad compare to some of its neighboring countries? Chad has come under the French control since late 19th century and early 20th century uh, and was part of the French Equatorial Af- Africa 
but in 1960 was granted independence. Uh, despite this, uh, the country was really, really struggling, I, I should say, because of uh, civil wars, coups, and if you look on uh, how Chad uh, is looking geography geographically currently, uh, it is bordering many countries that are facing or were fa facing major armed conflicts. Chad uh, is not a really developed nation, I should say. In the Human Development Index, if you look into those statistics, it's one of the least developed countries. It's, to be exact, 187th of all of the countries around the world. And uh, most of the Chad's uh, GDP comes from the petroleum oils. It's uh, about four-fifths of the whole Chadian GDP. And if a country relies mostly on the petroleum uh, and it's still uh, really, really poor, uh, you have some worries about uh, the future because obviously petroleum is going to be extracted and it uh, will no longer be there. And But what comes next? if you have nothing to sell to the outside world. Chad is almost completely surrounded by unstable nations and civil wars. To the east lies Sudan and their war with Darfur. That's only 100 kilometers from Chad's eastern border, and you can imagine the problems that spill over from that one. To the north of Chad lies Libya, a nation they were at full-scale war with only a few short decades ago. And to the west lies Niger, a nation currently amongst its own internal fighting. And whilst the government in Niger has some control over its main population areas around the capital, it's the deserts in the east that the government struggles to have any semblance of authority over. And those desert areas are the ones that border Chad. To the southwest of Chad lies the big brother of Africa, Nigeria. Although as we will talk about a bit later, Nigeria itself is entangled in major fighting with its own homegrown terrorist groups, mostly ISIS in Africa and Boko Haram. Continuing counterclockwise, we reach Cameroon, just south of Chad. Cameroon is struggling with many issues itself, between civil fighting and the French and English parts of the country going to war with each other. But where we have desert fighting in Niger, Cameroon has close quarters jungle fighting, making it much harder for the government in Yawande to stomp it out. Whichever direction you head from Chad, you will find instability, war, and poverty. Even if you were to stay in Chad, though, there is still fighting in the country between the fertile south and the more arid north. Are these kind of civil wars common in this area? The religious divide in all of those countries, in Chad, Niger, and Nigeria, is mostly due to colonial empires not looking into how that divide uh, would look like they weren't concerned that maybe one day uh, Christians could uh, attack Muslims and vice versa. So they were only uh, worried about territory. They really didn't care too much about uh, any religious tension between Muslims and Christians. Niger is much poorer than Chad comparatively and has been struggling with various insurgencies for years now. Why is Niger comparatively worse than its neighbors in Chad and Nigeria? Niger could be perhaps the poorest country in the entire world, and the Islamist groups who are fighting in both West and the East aren't really helping in making the country just a bit richer because uh, in the west we have groups which are both related to al-qaeda and the islamic state and of course in the east we have boko haram faction that is also aligned with the islamic state and in both of those 
areas and they are not only clashing with each other mainly in the west where the gen n i am is uh, fighting heavily with uh, the islamic state in the greater sahara but they are also fighting the safety forces security forces nigeria is fairly well off compared to the other lake chad nations ranking 27th on the gdp list i mean that's higher than argentina egypt or even israel this is largely thanks to a booming oil industry and a very large working age population although much like chad nigeria has a very prominent north-south divide the south being along the coast is where the majority of the population lives and is heavily christianized and the arab north being mostly sparse and predominantly populated by the muslim populations in nigeria this divide has been the source of a lot of the internal fighting for nigeria for decades and decades and decades can you take us through a bit of that uh the north south divide in nigeria is quite similar to the one in chad because in the north uh, there is a majority muslim population and in the south there is a majority christian population and that obviously has to cause some tension between the north and the south uh, north is a lot poorer than the south most of the major cities are in the south because they are in the coast so obviously that area would be richer than the than the north Nigeria and Chad both have a similar problem, I should say, because uh, they mostly, they both mostly rely on uh, the oil. And in Nigeria, oil is mostly found in the south southern part uh, of the country, and this causes a big divide between north and south. Not only south is a lot richer than the north but there's also a religious divide between those parts of nigeria uh, for instance uh, in the north there is a majority muslim population and in the south we have mostly christians there is also language differences between many of groups around the country in the north people mostly speak Hausa, while uh, in the south there are many Yoruba and Igbo people. And the most uniting thing uh, for the Nigerian people, apart of course from the flag and uh, the territory as a whole, uh, and that is uh, the English language. If there wasn't an English language as uh, some kind of a present from the the English Empire, the British Empire, the country wouldn't be uh, like it is today, that would be probably divided into many smaller countries. Many of Nigeria's problems emanate out of the Lake Chad area, much like they do for Cameroon, for Niger, and for Chad as well. Uh, do you think the situation around the lake is getting better or worse at the moment? I would say it is better than four years ago though because uh, Boko Haram does not does not have uh, any control over the larger cities in the Borno state which is the center of the Boko Haram insurgency it doesn't mean though that they are unable to launch bigger attacks because we've seen them in last two three years they were even able to capture some of the cities, but because of the military tactic inside of the group, which says this is more of a battle of attrition for them because they want to kill the local security forces. They want to capture equipment. They want to destroy the equipment of the security forces. So they are not able to use them which makes them much, much weaker. Uh, if they were to hold any of those cities they want to capture, it would cause them a lot of casualties. The group is obviously present in the countryside, not just in Nigeria, but of course uh, in Chad, in Cameroon and the Niger. 
and the local security forces rarely leave the city centers. Sometimes they launch bigger offensive against them. And this is um, something that the local forces have to have to do because the terrorists use the countryside where the security forces cannot operate because there they would be a lot easier to be ambushed and killed. Where there is a lack of government or lack of law and order, chaos almost always springs up to take the reins. The man with the gun becomes the leader when there are no other leaders around. The governments in Njamina, Abuja, Niame, and Yawande may hold their capitals, many of their major cities. But along the periphery, the country becomes more like an archipelago of large towns than a conjoined state. Where the journey from one city to another travels through large swathes of ungoverned territory. Territory often surrendered to the terrorists. And out of these vacuums have risen some of the most brutal terrorist organizations the African continent has ever produced. Al-Qaeda, ISIS in Africa, and of course Nigeria's own Boko Haram. And to talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. Fighting Terror with Terror I think Boko Haram in many ways is a very Nigerian thing. It's, it's, a lot of it has to do with, um, with very Nigerian dynamics. Um, the, 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 the tension between a supposedly Muslim North and a supposedly Christian South, and this is a question of perception there, because it's not exactly that. Um, also a frustration um, among a lot of the population vis-a-vis -a, -vis a state that is both extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, but also weak and, and brutal at times. Um, so, you know, this sort of Nigerian recipe um, at some point uh, resulted in a, in a mass social movement um, that, that, that was looking at, uh, at, at religion, um, a confrontational religion, as a way to, to improve society, to make it just. Uh, when you talk to, uh, to former members uh, of Boko Haram, they will often tell you that that they, they committed to the movement uh, with the hope of, uh, you know, bringing justice into the world. That is very much how they talk about it. Vincent Fouché is a research fellow at the French National Science Research Centre, as well as an Africa consultant for the International Crisis Group. Vincent is one of the world's most vocal experts when it comes to the dire situation surrounding Lake Chad. And he joins us today. Well, I think one of the big differences, for instance, if you compare it to uh, other jihadi movements in the Sahel, is that it, it began as a social movement, as a mass social movement. It, uh, it had a, a lot of followers before entering into a violent phase. Um, and so uh, that gives the movement a, a degree, uh, like, uh, you know, a number of, uh, of followers that is, that is quite significant. And, and because they are confronted, uh, they are fighting uh, a state, a Nigerian state, and also the neighboring states in Niger, Chad, and Cameroon. But, but the real focus is Nigeria. It's very much a Nigerian story. Um, because of that, uh, it's a state that has serious governance problems, including in its security response. And, and they've been able to, uh, to secure um, significant territorial control. Uh, the movement is factionalized in two factions. And, and they, they, each faction basically has um, a, a number of strongholds, uh, usually in areas like uh, hills or forests or marshes. And, and from those areas uh, of which they exert a real control, including fiscal control, they are taxing um, the civilians living there. And so from those strongholds, they're able to exert um, influence beyond. It's quite different uh, if you look at, uh, at what the situation of, of jihadism in the Sahel, in Mali and Niger is. It's where it is a lot more about networks than about um, actual quasi-states, uh, you know, um, exerting territorial control. Boko Haram, which in English would roughly translate to against Western education, started out as a terrorist group in the north of Nigeria. Where have they spread to now? How far does Boko Haram reach? Well, they are they are uh, limited to Nigeria, uh, more specifically to the northeast of Nigeria. They had um, a followership in other parts of the north, but actually, when 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 the war really began, 
um, they, they, they were uh, able to mobilize and organize in the Northeast. And they did so because the Northeast um, has some interesting uh, geographical oddities, you know, these forests, marshes, hills uh, that, that are very useful uh, to wage guerrilla. Also, that part of the, nor the Northeast is, is, uh, is a very interesting border situation because four countries um, meet there, uh, Niger, Chad um, and Cameroon, uh, meet with Nigeria and they meet um, in this uh, very specific place called Lake Chad, uh, which should not be imagined as, a, as an open water, uh, you know, massive open water lake. It's not Lake Mich Michigan. It's a, it's a lake with lots of... Um, of foliage, uh, lots of marshes, there are different basins. Uh, it's a very complex um, uh, system. And, and it's, a, it's one that is very, um, very good for, for circulation and for hiding as well. Um, so the movement has expanded into those um, the, the areas neighbor, in the neighboring countries, uh, you know, but, but just really in the periphery um, of, those, uh, of those countries. And, and it, it keeps its... Uh, it's real hitting power uh, in, in the northeast of Nigeria. Boko Haram first came to international attention when they kidnapped 276 schoolgirls in April of 2014. Uh, can you take us through this story a bit? Yeah, Boko Haram uh, came to, to international fame um, when they kidnapped um, uh, more than 200 girls um, in, a, in a, board, a state boarding school in the northeast of Nigeria. And, and it, it, it's actually a fairly late development because the insurgency began in 2009 um, and there, there was an early episode in 2003. Um, uh, so, but, but this episode got a huge echo. Um, I guess, the, you know, the, this, this figure of, uh, of young girls, um, school-going girls, um, kind of resonated globally uh, uh, probably more. And, and in a way also, uh, Boko Haram went for girls um, partly because the Nigerian state was going after uh, their own women, uh, their own families, and was arresting um, the wives and daughters of, of, of Boko Haram associates as, as punishment. So, um, you know, the, the, the violence there is, uh, as always, uh, is interactive. Uh, one side um, does something and the other reacts and adapts and, uh, and sort of answers. Uh, violence is dialogical. Most terrorist organizations get a big chunk of their funding from overseas donors. Where is Boko Haram getting their funding from? Uh, in the initial days, um, there, there were some connections with, uh, with Al-Qaeda. There was some money, uh, apparently, that came at some point from, uh, from Al-Qaeda or from Al-Qaeda affiliates in, uh, in the Sahel. Uh, in 2015, um, Haram pledged allegiance to the Islamic State, um, and, and some money also came uh, from the Islamic State. Um, but the fact is, the movement is largely self-funded, um, funded through um, partisans uh, who, who pull money uh, to finance um, the activity, and they did that before um, you know, the, the violent outburst. They were doing social work, they were organizing preachings, it was largely uh, based on, uh, on, on uh, money pulled together from members. Um, after the, the war began, it kind of turned into some sort of racketeering. Uh, you know, the big men, the traders, the, the big politicians, um, Boko Haram um, members would go with guns basically for shakedowns uh, to finance the movement. Um, banditry also has played a part. Hostage taking, there were some very serious, um, you know, million dollar um, their ransoms paid on occasions. Um, and also more recently, largely due to the influence of the Islamic State, one of the factions um, basically um, did a lot of effort to develop its, uh, its fiscal system, um, taxing uh, the trade in cattle, in, uh, in fish, um, trying to uh, you know, stabilize a relationship with a population to, to tax it, tax it moderately uh, in a controlled way, um, in a sustainable way. The Nigerian army has been fighting these guys for almost a decade now. You know, they have planes, they have tanks, they have sophisticated weapons. So why has the Nigerian army been able to actually deliver the knockout blow here? How come they haven't knocked out Boko Haram after a decade of fighting them? It's a complex story. Um, and, and I think initially there was, the, there was um, a certain reluctance to... Um, 
because the initial response was extremely hard and actually uh, fed the flame, uh, then there was a, a degree of cautiousness. Uh, the elites in the north were trying to sort it by themselves, you know, by negotiation. It didn't quite play out. Um, and then they went on the military offensive again. The problem is that the Nigeria has a lot of fronts, uh, lots of areas of Nigeria, um, uh, no trouble, and the military are involved in, in many, many internal issues, uh, banditry, um, you know, cattle rustling, um, separatist movements in the southeast. There's, there's a variety of fronts, so it's difficult. The army is not very good at mustering durably uh, resources. So much so that in 2015, President Goodluck Jonathan actually resorted to um, South African mercenaries uh, to, to, to help them. And, and, and that was really when the, the tide was stemmed. Um, because the Nigerian army has, has got huge governance problems, huge morale problems as well. Uh, there's, there's, you know, desertions, um, sort of mutinies or incidents between soldiers and officers. Um, also, all sorts of stories about allowances not being paid, um, soldiers staying on the front line for you know months um, without leaves, you know those kind of uh, mismanagement and, and problems like that. There was very serious episodes also of uh, of corruption, of uh, you know embezzlement of money, uh, fake arms deals, um, whose, whose money basically disappeared. Um, so I think this is very much part of the. Of the, of the limitations. Um, some efforts have been made, um, but you know, there's, um, those are deep tendencies um, in, in, in the whole of Nigerian politics. It's not just the Nigerian army. It's a, it's a country with a serious governance problem. Boko Haram mostly operate in the north of Nigeria. So would someone living in the south, let's say in Lagos, the biggest city in Nigeria, would they be affected much by Boko Haram from day to day? I think that is very much part of the problem, actually. There were very few operations um, uh, in, in the early days, uh, bombings by Boko Haram, especially in Abuja, the federal capital. Um, but, but yes, um, the bulk of the country is not really exposed. It's exposed only through, um, through the media, uh, with, with, you know, very, uh, very, um, very basic uh, understandings uh, with very little nuance, um, a lot of um, a lot of propaganda. Um, so th that's a problem. There. And it, it, of course, it makes it difficult to mobilize um, the, the public opinion um, because it the perception is is not accurate, um, and and it, it connects to this very big north-south divide, um, which is a big problem in Nigeria, which is which is one of the causes of Boko Haram, and which is in a way being fed and, 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 and transformed uh, by Boko Haram. Um, so there's a lot of conspiracy theories, you know, there was this sense uh, for a time that the Christian president, um, the previous, uh, the one before the current president who's Muslim, that President Goodluck uh, was, you know, just uh, uh, using Boko Haram to, uh, to destroy the north or the northeast and, and you know, we diminish the, the extent of, uh, of the vote uh, of the Muslims. Um, and then there's rumors that uh, the Muslim, Muslim president now is actually protecting Boko Haram. And of course, none of this is true, but, but this is, you know, feeding a climate of suspicion, of, uh, of lack of trust uh, that, is, that is making, um, you know, any effort basically uh, very, very difficult. Obviously, there's some affiliations there, but ISIS in Africa is very different to Boko Haram. So can you take us through how the two differ from each other? Okay, so in 2015, Boko Haram pledged allegiance to uh, the Islamic State and became um, the Islamic State in West Africa uh, province. Uh, but then in 2016, there was a, a divide within uh, this Islamic State West Africa province. And so one faction, under the historic leader, uh, Abu Bakar Shikau, um, went back to, um, to Boko Haram's actual name, which is Jamaat Halal Sunnah Lidawati Wal Jihad. Um, and, and then the other faction stayed uh, with the with the IS stamp and kept the name uh, Islamic State in West Africa province. So they are really operating in the same area, though in, in different uh, portions of the same area of the northeast of Nigeria and, and the Lake Chad area. Um, and so 
the Islamic State has, has helped uh, significantly um, those, uh, their faction uh, evolve, uh, professionalizing it, um, sending some trainers, uh, sending a lot of you know, organizational and tactical advice, um, helping them use drones, for instance. I'm talking about you know, commercial drones, just observation, not, not military drones. Uh, you know, so all sorts of innovations have been uh, have been uh, uh, transferred uh, by the Islamic State to uh, to, to uh, the Islamic State in West Africa province, uh, and, and now the Islamic State in West Africa province actually the Islamic State chose to put another group uh, which operates at the Mali Niger border, uh, which used to be known as Islamic State in the Greater Sahel. Um, they were also uh, put under um, the Islamic State in West Africa province. But the, the, the organizational links between those two subsets are, are apparently not very strong. So it's, it's a fairly complex geography, I'm afraid. But when it comes to the fighting around Lake Chad, is it mostly ISIS in Africa or is it mostly Boko Haram? Well, the Islamic State in West Africa province is certainly uh, the, the more numerous and the more active one, and they are the ones uh, doing the biggest hits uh, against the, 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 the forces of Nigeria and the neighboring countries. Um, but, but the situation is a bit fluid uh, because there are tensions within the Islamic State, um, pro-Islamic State faction, and some, some, some uh, subsets have left and gone back to Abu Bakr Shekau's uh, movement, uh, you know, bringing their knowledge, their experience, their, their, their revised tactics. So um, some pro-Shekau groups, uh, subgroups have been, uh, have been quite active, uh, especially on Lake Chad itself, in the northern part of Lake Chad. Um, there's, there's a group led by a man called Pakura, um, which is favorable to Sekau, which has been quite active. Uh, they, they, they did a massive attack uh, against the Chadian army uh, in, in Chad, in Bahoma, um, in, the, in the Chadian part of Lake Chad, um, some time back. So, you know, ISWAP is the most uh, powerful, but the other ones are learning. Countering a lot of these terrorist groups in the region would be the French Foreign Legion, an elite squad of troops run by the French government who do quite a lot of operating in the formerly francophone parts of Africa. Uh, can you take us through who the French Foreign Legion are and why they operate in this area of the world? Well, I mean, they have a, they have a significant uh, force, uh, which is called Barkhane. Um, and which has a strike force as well called Takuba, and and what they are doing is basically uh, they are trying to uh, to do uh, sort of uh, sharp, um, very aggressive operations against uh, against um, Sahelian and jihadi, um, and, and they have, of course they have some success. Um, of course, the problem is uh, um, you know a series of tactical success is not a strategic success. And are the French Foreign Legion completely supplied and logistics-wise supplied by Paris, or do they also coordinate with the Americans and other allied partners in the region as well? No, there's, there's a lot of cooperation between, uh, between Western countries uh, around issues in, uh, in the Sahel and, and Boko Haram. Um, for instance, the US provides uh, crucial support for the French army uh, in terms of air transport. Um, you know the, the, the air transport um, of, of equipment men. Uh, France has a sort of structural problem there, and the U.S. is very important in uh, in helping um, French military mobility. Um, and, and you know, there's all sorts of exchanges of operations. Uh, some of the French operation is is fed by U.S. intelligence. Um, the French, the U.S., and and, and the British. Uh, also providing intelligence to the armies in the, uh, you know, in the lake, in the Lake Chad, uh, in the MNGTF, or in the Sahel through the G5. There's, you know, fairly lively uh, military regional cooperation. Many leaders in this region have been there for quite a while now. President Deby of Chad has been there since 1990. President Isabel of Niger has been there since 2011. And Cameroon's President Beer has been in power since 1982. All three of these leaders, though, have one thing in common. They all have very close ties with successive governments in Paris. Do you think Paris helps support these leaders and suppress opposition from rising up to ensure a more stable region for Paris? 
Well, at least on one occasion, the French uh, Air Force uh, played a big part in, uh, in, in stopping uh, a column of rebels uh, that was, um, that was uh, coming down on the capital of Chad. So uh, it's quite clear that um, uh, acting the anti-terror um, fighter helps Debbie. Uh, you know, get uh, special treatment from international um, institutional financial institution, um, get support from France at, or the US at key at key moments, uh, and and it's not the only state doing that. You know, I mean, clearly Uganda, Ethiopia, um, Kenya uh, get a lot of mileage from 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 their commitment uh, against the GMP organization, and of course it's a problem because. It, it, Kind of gives a free pass to those states. It it sort of encourages them, encourages them to, to um, you know be not so careful about governance, and that's a problem because a lot of those GRD movements are precisely um, you know fed by governance problems. Uh, people, like I was saying, people are looking to jihad as a solution to uh, to an unsatisfactory state that seems visibly immoral. A couple of years ago, I remember chatting off air with a counterterrorism expert about the situation in North Africa. And I was asking why the US and France were so involved in the region still. He referred to the terrorism in the region as a wasp's nest, getting bigger and bigger in the European backyard. He went on to tell me there's only a few ways to deal with a wasp nest. One is to just leave it be, but then you run the risk of the hive getting bigger and the hive spreading all around the neighborhood. He also said you can try and seal around the hive by placing a container over it. That solves the hive problem from spreading, but now you have to stand there holding a container, and your life has to go on. Or you can take the brute force option. You can smash it, and although that might break the actual hive, it doesn't break the colony. It only angers the wasps and spreads them through the area, starting lots of smaller, harder-to-find hives. These are the three options a lot of these countries have when fighting terrorism in the region. So what do you do? Do you smash these terrorist cells? Do you stay there forever trying to contain them? Or do you just let them be, hoping they won't get out of control? Well, to talk more about this, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Colonial Leftovers we know remarkably few details about the various groups that are active there. All of the states that are involved, that is to say Chad, Nigeria, Niger, and Cameroon, uh, all are fundamentally weak states. And uh, in all three countries, though to a greater or lesser extent, um, much of the population is alienated from the formal government. The Lake Chad region is an area where, for a long time, dating back to pre the pre-colonial period, there have been periodic um, religious revivals, um, essentially uh, uh, within an Islamic context. John Campbell is a senior fellow for African policy at the Council of Foreign Relations. He is also the former U.S. ambassador to Nigeria and the director of the Office of U.N. Political Affairs. John also wrote the amazing book Nigeria and the Nation State, Diplomacy with the Postcolonial World. We are very excited to have John back on the program today. Finally, it's very important uh, to realize and focus on the fact that national boundaries mean almost nothing. Uh, the the national boundaries in the Lake Chad Basin were uh, drawn by the British, the French, and in those days, the Germans, because the Germans had, uh, uh, had, the, had the Cameroons. Uh, and those national boundaries do not reflect realities on the ground. Further, the boundaries are extraordinarily porous. Uh, in one stretch of the boundary between Nigeria and the Cameroons, for example, there's something like four official crossing points and some 350 informal crossing points. So when people talk about controlling boundaries or controlling borders, that is largely illusory. The four countries that make up the Lake Chad area 
Do they coordinate very much with each other, or is it a very competitive relationship between Chad, Niger, Nigeria, and Cameroon? Yeah, actually, they don't operate well together at all. Um, there is a long-standing history of um, rivalry, but also incomprehension. Um, um, three of them, Niger, Chad, and Cameroon, are Francophone. Uh, Nigeria is Anglophone. Nigeria is vastly larger than the others. Um, the best estimate now is that Nigeria is some 214 million people, and the population is growing extremely fast. It is expected to displace the United States as the third largest country in the world by population by 2050. Uh, Niger, Chad, Cameroon uh, are all quite, um, quite small. Um, historically, a great deal of suspicion um, between uh, Nigeria and the Francophone countries, much Nigerian historic resentment at what is seen as, uh, as too much French presence. Uh, the French are seen as somehow or another uh, um, uh, rivals with Nigeria for, uh, for being the, uh, the hegemonic power uh, in West Africa. Uh, so day-to-day -day cooperation is awkward and difficult. There is one relationship that does seem to be working somewhat well, and that's between Chad and Cameroon with the oil coming out of Chad heading through Cameroon to make it to the ocean for export. Is there a reason Chad chose to work with Cameroon rather than, let's say, Nigeria? My impression is that that relationship is working reasonably well. Um, it's also important to remember that uh, Chad uh, and the Cameroon, Cameroons were part of the same um, French uh, colonial uh, entity called uh, uh, French Equatorial Africa. Um, so that when you're talking about civil servants, business people, and so forth, um, there is a history of cooperation facilitated by the fact that both, uh, that both countries are French speaking. Staying on oil here, Nigeria has very significant oil deposits off its own southern coast, but it has been exploring heavily in the Lake Chad region, which is right at the other end of the country. What is Nigeria hoping to get from the Lake Chad Basin when it comes to the oil industry? Um, there is a great deal of interest in the potential for oil production, not just in the Lake Chad uh, Basin, but through the whole uh, Niger River system. Right now, of course, the international price of oil uh, is, is relatively low. Um, in outside or new investments in the oil industry uh, is also down. So not a whole lot is going on in that particular area. But let me go a little bit further and say that I don't think oil or the potential for oil is a particularly large issue uh, in terms of happening in the Lake Chad Basin. Um, uh, Chad and Cameroon both uh, have uh, uh, important and still unexploited um, um, sources of oil. And of course, the oil and gas reserves of Nigeria are amongst the largest in the world. Former President of Libya Muammar Gaddafi has been described as the man who kept the lid on the terrorism when it came to the Lake Chad region. Uh, with him now gone and Libya in chaos, do you think this has contributed to the situation we are seeing on the ground here in the basin? A question on which um, there is relatively little agreement amongst people uh, who watch um, the region carefully. Um, it's easy to overemphasize Gaddafi as once having been a source of stability. Um, Gaddafi, for example, was a major source of anxiety for successive Nigerian governments. Relations between Chad and Libya uh, also had their ups and downs. Um, there is a uh, almost a corollary to this that I think uh, might be worth 
mentioning, and that is, uh, it is widely thought that the collapse of the Qaddafi regime um, essentially resulted in a flood of, of weapons um, throughout all of West Africa, which has proven to be destabilizing. Uh, to which I would say, well, perhaps, uh, but there has been a flood of weapons in West Africa for a very, very long time, and weapons are relatively cheap. Where do most of these weapons the terrorist groups actually use come from? You know, are they old Soviet leftovers? Are they Egyptian reproductions? You know, where are the weapons coming from that we're seeing being used in the region? Um, it's in a sense, it's it, it's all of the above. Um, also, it's easy to, it's easy to forget that um, uh, Nigeria, for example, manufactures arms. In other words, there there are domestic uh, uh, arms industries um, uh, in West Africa. Um, further. Um, the weapons that were involved in the uh, civil wars in Angola, uh, in Liberia, uh, in Mozambique, um, they, they didn't just simply disappear. Um, they've been in circulation for a long time. Um, it's interesting, if you, um, if you look at a collection of weapons that has been captured, uh, and look at the origins. Um, the, uh, the origins are all over the place. Some of them are Ukrainian, um, uh, often 20, 25, 30 years old. Others of domestic manufacture. Um, a lot of American weapons, uh, which uh, um, which ended up there. Often, uh, often these weapons get there by a fairly circuitous route. With Libya in chaos and unable to do any of the counterterrorism work, Emmanuel Macron of France has been meeting with the leadership in Algeria quite frequently, hoping they might take on more of a role of counterterrorism in the region. How likely do you think it is that Algeria would take on this heavy role? Um, I think if one were, were going to simplify, perhaps even oversimplify, um, what the Algerians have been doing is that they have been pushing uh, mil militant radical Islamist movements out of Nigeria towards the south. But that's what they're really interested in doing, pushing them out uh, as opposed to destroying them. Um, there, I think the Algerians probably have a fairly realistic view uh, of what is actually possible and what is not possible. That, in other words, you can push terrorist groups out, but it's very, very hard to destroy them. One of the biggest fears in this region about leaving all these terrorist groups unchecked is that they may unite and form a more coordinated effort against other governments. How likely do you think it is that these terrorist groups may unite and work together to achieve their goals here? That's a $64 question uh, and one that sometimes keeps me up at night. In other words, um, we talk about um, Boko Haram in Borno. Uh, and in the Lake Chad Basin. But Boko Haram's operations may indeed be shifting towards uh, western, uh, northwestern Nigeria. And the, there is the potential that uh, uh, there could be uh, either tactical or strategic cooperation uh, amongst the variety of radical Islamist groups that are operating um, uh, in the uh, in the Western Sahel, um, what mitigates against it a bit is that these various Islamist uh, Islamist groups uh, all have rival leaderships. Um, the relationships within the ruling group of each of them uh, tends to be unstable and often quite bloody. So the question would be whether a common ideology, um, a sort of Salafist version of Islam, uh, would be strong enough to overcome um, these, these other divisions. Um, up to now, in some areas, 
there has been momentary uh, cooperation among them, but also cooperation with the important criminal, particularly smuggling networks um, that operate all over the Sahel. But there doesn't seem to be thus far uh, any overarching um, structures. In other words, uh, there's been nothing like the caliphate uh, that the Islamic State uh, established in Iraq and in Syria. It's been much more diffuse. When we look back at something like the ISIS caliphate in Iraq and Syria, there was a lot of money being donated from rich Gulf states and wealthy benefactors. Are we seeing these sorts of donations flowing to these African groups, or are they, for the most part, locally funded? Um, I would start with the fact that the kind of terrorism that you see um, straight across the Sahel is really quite cheap. It doesn't require very much money. Um, so that even small amounts of money coming from even individual benefactors uh, can, be, can be pretty significant. Um, if I were asked uh, to stake my own position, it would be that, yes, there has been some outside money, but that it has not been transformative, that essentially most of the terrorism that we see uh, in, um, in West Africa is, is locally funded, um, frequently by criminal uh, uh, activity, particularly kidnapping. Uh, kidnapping can be enormously lucrative. Um, the kidnapping of Europeans, particularly so, um, since, while well, they all deny it, um, uh, European states have been known to pay enormous ransoms um, to secure the freedom of their own nationals. The United States has been getting more and more involved in this region of the world, even expanding its drone bases around Agadez in central Niger. What do you think the overall strategic goal of the U.S. is here in the Lake Chad region? So the U.S. military presence is, um, is extremely small, uh, and I would say is very largely marginal. Um, it's perhaps its most important dimension is that uh, it uh, provides a certain amount of logistical and intelligence support, uh, particularly for the French uh, in, um, uh, in the Western Sahel. Um, it's easy to forget that France and the United States were in fact quite close allies uh, and have been now for uh, um, uh, really pretty much since the, um, since the Second World War, um, so that the support for the French in West Africa uh, should be seen in the context of a much larger relationship. So with the United States providing France a lot of logistical support, what do you think France's strategic goals in the region are then? Well, <clears throat> yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're talking about about outside powers, uh, it's really the French, um, and certainly not the Americans. <clears throat> For the French, uh, what used to be uh, French West Africa uh, is the near abroad. Uh, it's roughly analogous to the way Moscow views um, Belarus uh, or, or the Ukraine. Um, successive French governments are well aware of the fact uh, that, um, that West Africa is really quite close to Europe. Um, further, there is a significant West African diaspora um, um, that, uh, that, that lives in France. Uh, and as you no, no doubt know, um, Islam is now the second largest religion in France. So there are myriad connections uh, uh, between, uh, between France and West Africa. All of that said, the economic dimension of that relationship is relatively small. And how deep that relationship is 
amongst the French population is relatively hard for outsiders to judge. There are signs, however, that French popular toleration for French casualties in the Western Sahara is quite low. That, in other words, if the body count starts to go up, um, uh, French governments may be subject to popular pressure to pull back. That hasn't happened yet. Paris pretty openly supports some of these leaders who have been in power for decades now. Do you think Paris is taking a preferring the devil you know strategy rather than risking a power struggle and the instability that comes with it in places like N'Djamena and Niamey? Well, I think there's also the question of what the capacity would be. I mean, how, as a practical matter, uh, do you, in fact, bring about regime change uh, if you're sitting in Paris uh, and you're looking at, uh, at N'Djamena or Yaoundé? I mean, how do you do it? Uh, it would imply a greater degree um, of direct involvement than I think would be palatable to most French governments. I mean, after all, uh, we Americans have, uh, have, have seen just how difficult that is to do uh, in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, now I'm skeptical whether, uh, whether any outside power uh, be it France, be it the United States, um, be it the EU. Uh, I'm skeptical whether um, uh, they could actually stabilize uh, the region. The conflicts, the conflicts are uh, essentially indigenous. Uh, resolving them would require the wholesale restructuring of the political economies uh, of the of the region, that in turn would imply a much greater degree of involvement than I can see any Western democracy taking on. So, if the French and Americans were likely to just pick up sticks and leave the region, what do you think the likely outcome and fallout would be from that decision? Um, what I think you'd have is uh, uh, even more warlordism than you have now. Uh, you would have uh, a, a, a resurgence of uh, Islamist, Islamist activity, the possibility of the region becoming a kind of nursery for radical Islamist groups that would directly threaten Europe and the United States, rather like Afghanistan did before 9-11. Um, those chances would, would, um, would greatly increase. Um, Probably a great deal more misery. Uh, what the misery would do uh, is drive migration uh, uh, in, um, in the region, ultimately driving migration towards Europe and eventually even, uh, even the United States. Um, it's interesting, uh, during some periods of time, uh, more migrants crossing the Mediterranean for Europe uh, come from Sub-Saharan Africa than come from the Middle East. So where do you see Lake Chad going over the next 15 to 20 years? Do you think the situation is going to get better, get worse? What do you think the future holds for the Lake Chad Basin? I would tend to see relatively little potential for change. That, in other words, 10 years from now, the region will be about as unstable as it is now. The sources of that instability and the way that instability expresses itself uh, uh, could uh, uh, could well be could well be different. It's difficult for me to see how uh, Abuja, Njamina, Yaounde, uh, how how they can significantly increase their authority in the region given the current uh, socioeconomic realities. It's hard to work on any problems when you can't work on the source of the problem. And no matter what anyone in this region is trying to achieve here, the matter of the fact is the lake is shrinking quickly. The source of food, jobs, transport and water is disappearing right in front of people's eyes. 
So these people have every right to be scared and anxious about the situation. The Sahara Desert is creeping in and there's almost nothing in Jamina, Niame, Yawande or Abuja can do about it. And when the lake dries up, where will people turn to? Where else is there to go? Without serious intervention from outside groups, the situation is now a race. Who will get to these towns first? The Sahara Desert? Or the terrorist groups preying on the instability brought on by these governments comfortable enough with their guaranteed positions of power that not a lot gets done? To these people, the factors causing this are global, but the only solutions they have at hand are local. So what will change? Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. January 2021 was our biggest month yet, and that is completely thanks to our fantastic people just like you for checking out the program. The idea for this episode actually came from a fan of the show, Steve Theobald, who got in touch with me via our website. So thank you, Steve, for the suggestion to look into Lake Chad as a possible episode. I found this one fascinating to put together. If you want to find out more information on the show or get in contact with us, you can visit our website at www.theredlinepodcast.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit or Discord at the handle at the Red Line Pod. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me on the handle on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. Oz is in Australia. The show is made possible by our amazing supporters over at Patreon. Each of these people donate a few bucks a month to the show and it helps keep this thing running. And I cannot thank each and every one of them enough for their support. I regularly catch up with our Patreons at our bi-monthly live Q&A sessions. We actually just had one last night, which was a lot of fun. And we also do group catch-ups playing geography games like GeoGasa, all with our widespread audience from all around the globe. I really love hanging out with you guys and girls. And if you want to come join us at these hangouts, you can support us for just as little as a couple of bucks a month. Each and every dollar we make from the Patreon goes straight back into the show so we can go off and chase bigger and better stories. So of those of you who do decide to donate to the show, a huge thank you for myself and the rest of the Redline team. Another big thank you goes out to all of our guests this week. Tomasz Robiecki does some of the best journalism you'll find on this region of the world, collating thousands of data points, articles and reports from sources all over Africa. He really does a lot of stunning work in this field, and if you want to check out some of his work, you can find him on the Twitter handle, at Tomasz Robiecki. Vincent Fouchier came to me highly recommended for one of my friends over at the Crisis Group, and it is pretty easy to see why. Vincent has been one of the best sources around when it comes to this region of the world, writing some of the best articles that help bring light to an often overlooked situation on the ground. So for on-the-ground analysis, I don't think you could find many people better than Vincent. And if you want to check out his work, you can find him on Twitter on the handle at Vincent Fouchier. John Campbell had been on the show previously for our piece on South Sudan, and to this day, he still remains one of my favorite guests of all time. John has been at the forefront of Western African policy for decades now. John knows who all the major players are in this region, and can give amazingly detailed analysis on the overall strategic trajectories for all the players in the region. He's a great source and an even better guy. And if you want to check out John's work and find him on Twitter, he's available at the handle at John Campbell CFR. As we mentioned last episode in our Ukraine piece, one of our patrons suggested we should add a recommended reading list to the end of each episode, so people who are heavily invested in this week's story can go and read further up on it. So, here are my three book recommendations for this fortnight for Lake Chad. The Looting Machine by Tom Burgess, probably one of my favourite books I read last year, all about how African mining and politics works. You should check out Nigeria and the Nation State by the amazing John Campbell, all about how Nigeria works, and we probably could have done a whole piece on Nigeria just by himself. And my third book recommendation for Lake Chad is New Architecture of Regional Security, Perspectives on Global Terrorism Insurgency in the Lake Chad Basin by Usman Etar, for some of you who want really detailed work on this area. As many of you know, this show only functions because of the amazing support from my team. Mark Spencer, who does the bumpers for each of these episodes, is one of the best in the business when it comes to voiceover work. He not only produces amazing content for himself and his show, 
but also has the skills to run an entire network of shows and video channels. Mark is one of the most solid work ethics I've ever seen in the industry, and we are very lucky to have him on the Red Lion team. You can find Mark on Twitter with the handle at Climactic Show. Owen Swift is one of the brightest people in foreign policy I have ever come across, writing a whole series of amazing papers on a number of diverse subjects. Owen has joined our team recently as one of our key researchers. He rebuilt our website and also wrote a bunch of amazing articles and features that really have become a great asset to the show. I get the feeling we'll be hearing a lot more from Owen and his writing over the coming months, and I'm very excited about it. But if you want to get ahead of the curve and find out more about Owen, you can find him on Twitter with the handle at Owen A. Swift. Joe Hawthorne helps us clean and prepare the audio to get this show to the quality we're chasing. Joe is the single reason this show sounds so crisp as it does, and if you ever wanted to hire Joe for yourself, I would highly recommend it. Joe is also working on transcriptions on a number of our episodes as well, so stay tuned for more of his amazing work on that front. But if you want to find Joe on Twitter, he's located at the handle at JoeHawthorne77. The last thanks goes out to you for listening to the program. I know I say this almost every episode, but every time I get DMs and emails from you guys, it always brightens my day up. I met so many amazing people from them reaching out to the show, and I've caught up with many of them over Zoom for a beer, and I cannot wait to meet even more of you. Some of you I am very proud to call close friends these days. So thank you to all of you who listened to the show, told your friends, and reached out to us here at the program. We will be back in another fortnight with a slightly different themed episode, one that we've been working on for a while now, and I'm pretty excited to finally put it out. But until then, have a great week. Thank you, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.